Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests from Foundation Devices, a company whom you no doubt are well aware of as a viewer and potentially reader of the Bitcoin layer. I'm joined by Seth, who is the head of content at Foundation, and Bitcoin Q&A, who is the head of customer experience. Gentlemen, how's it going? Going pretty well, Joe. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us on. Looking forward to our chat today. Yep, likewise. Doing great, Joe. Uh, looking forward to, to diving in for the next uh, 45 minutes. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Um, you know, I'm sure our, our listeners are really, really excited for this one. As we were talking about before the show, we usually discuss sort of the financial aspect of uh, Bitcoin and macro. We cover both of those topics equally. And in these days, it's somewhat more weighted to macro. And we talk about the financial side. We talk about Bitcoin as an asset, how it can protect you um, from just perpetual monetary debasement, credit expansion, and these, these vicious economic cycles. But we rarely talk about Bitcoin, the asset. We rarely talk about why this asset was created and one of the most useful aspects of it, how it's actually used, right? Which is this digital bearer asset. Um, it is the one of two assets in the known universe that holds its value through time that you actually can have ownership of, right? That's what Bitcoin is. So today, gentlemen, I, I don't want to necessarily talk about, you know, dollar figures on Bitcoin where Bitcoin's price is headed. I want our audience to, to learn about and understand uh, Bitcoin, the asset, what it is, why it exists, um, and, and what a bear asset is generally. So uh, I guess we'll start there, either Seth or Q&A, uh, if you want to take this one. Why was Bitcoin invented uh, in the first place? And then we'll jump off from there. Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in first. Uh, so yeah, Bitcoin was was uh, invented or discovered, as some people like to say uh, esoterically, um, the as a as a uh, an option to to opt out of the the flailing financial system. Um, you know, I'm sure your readers and listeners don't need me to tell them that you know the the financial uh, system has its various booms and busts. Although the booms seem to be getting bigger, and, and as do the busts, unfortunately. Um, so the entity behind Satoshi Nakamoto could be one person, could be a number of people. Um, has designed a system that uh, anybody can can opt into that so that they can opt out of the failing financial system. Um, so Bitcoin was aimed to uh, fix or patch some holes, patch over the holes of uh, the, the, the failings within the current uh, or existing legacy monetary systems. Um, and within monetary systems, uh, we've obviously got the, the stereotypical sort of fiat money that could be physical cash or it could be uh, just some dollars in your bank account. Uh, and we also include, the, I guess, the the oldest form of money, which is which is gold, which still holds uh, some monetary value and and some uh, aspects of trade as well. Um, Bitcoin was aimed to kind of take all of the best bits of both of those, um, whilst making some acceptable trade offs to kind of make a more well rounded money. Uh, with the all important bit being that it was outside uh, or at least resistant to uh, the clutches of, of central governments and, and more namely central banks as well. So I'm sure we can dive into, you know, the trade-offs that were made there and the, the sort of different properties that, that Bitcoin was created with and where it excels and where maybe it has its shortcomings. But uh, I'll let Seth chime in first before we kind of do a more deeper dive. Yeah, I think for me, like one of the beautiful things of Bitcoin is that it was created to solve a lot of different problems. And depending on your background, you can kind of focus on specific pieces of that. Like the digital gold narrative is one that I think hits home a lot more with more traditional investors and people looking to to store wealth over the long term uh, and just bringing gold, which is an amazing asset, obviously a great history, but very difficult to actually store and transfer. If you want to transfer gold across the ocean, you got to ship it, you got to mail it some way. It's very difficult to do that, very difficult to prove gold's authenticity quickly. There are a lot of problems with that. But when we move it into the digital world, we can use cryptography 
to very easily be able to to verify it to validate that it's legitimate. Uh, we can transfer it digitally without any middlemen, no no go betweens, nothing like that. And then if you look at the other main part of what Bitcoin was created to be, which is digital cash, which is some of the wording that Satoshi actually used in the initial white paper, it's an incredible tool to be able to transfer value, even small amounts of value. Uh, internationally, no matter what, 24-7, again, without any middlemen, without having to involve any banks that could could fail, could charge extra fees, something like that, without having to involve governments, without having to involve uh, Forex. Uh, there's a lot of things that are, are taken out of that process. And it, it's greatly simplified. So it enables a lot of use cases, whether it's storing wealth or just simply paying for coffee. You can do a lot of things with Bitcoin, um, but it, it really has taken a lot of the best parts of cash and gold and merge them into one digital asset that you can use for a variety of things and that you ultimately can custody and control and send and receive yourself without any middleman. Fantastic. One thing I, I want to say before I sort of ask this next question, right? We talk about that it's provable, it's digital ownership. You could send it across borders permissionlessly. It can be sent instantly. This is the way that people think money actually works, right? When I log into Venmo and I send money to somebody, if I was you know, not literate when it comes to how the financial system works, how apps like Venmo work, um, then I would be under the assumption that the money was sent instantaneously. I would be under the assumption that the money went from my phone to another person's phone that I was sending it to. But but in reality, it's not the case. It's, it's just a ledger entry. And it's a ledger entry that takes several days in order to uh, in order to actually work. Um, and and it's, the, the money isn't actually moving from, from uh, you know, my phone to somebody else's or my bank account or Venmo account to somebody else's. Um, and this is uh, something that Peter St. Onge said uh, on an episode that we did with him last week, right? Bitcoin is money uh, that functions the way you think money should. And so when we're saying things like you can send it near instantaneously, you can send it across borders, you can send it permissionly, permissionlessly, um, we, we think, well, that's the way that, that dollars work. But in, but in reality, it, it really isn't. Um, it, it isn't the way that dollars work whatsoever. And I think when that light bulb switches, uh, a lot more people understand the utility of, uh, of having Bitcoin and owning it. So let's talk about some of these benefits, right? Being able to send it across borders, being able to send it permissionlessly without the need of a middleman, right? Um, you know, anybody can, can hold money and send it to anybody else. How do you unlock these benefits of Bitcoin? Because I know a lot of our listeners, chances are they're holding their Bitcoin on an exchange and they aren't necessarily using it um, for the way with which it was intended, right? This bearer instrument um, that you can not only hold and, and verifiably prove that you own it, uh, but also send it and transact it with people. Um, how can people actually unlock these benefits of using Bitcoin rather than just holding it on an exchange where it's, where it's not really theirs? Yeah, it really comes down to these these words that I think a lot of people will hear in the Bitcoin space of self-custody or not your keys, not your coins. And that unlike something like Venmo, where ultimately you're you're trusting Venmo and the banks that they use to hold your funds, hopefully, to actually have your funds in the bank, hopefully, to transfer them from one person to another, hopefully. Uh, and like you said, it's really just changing numbers in a database. There's nothing functionally happening with money in, in those kind of instances. With Bitcoin, you can self-custody in the sense that you can actually take the Bitcoin, you can have the keys to the Bitcoin on Bitcoin's blockchain, on its open ledger, and you can have those keys yourself in your own custody. This would be the same as uh, if you actually had gold in your possession, you kept it in your house in a vault or something like that. You actually have it, you can verify it, you can hang on to it. Um, but obviously the digital aspects are beautiful in that in order to custody Bitcoin, all you actually really need to know is the the private key to to those funds. And ultimately that private key is usually uh, displayed in what are called seed words, 
So it's normally 12 or 24 words where if you know that seed phrase, if you have it written down somewhere, saved somewhere, if you have like a hardware wallet that helps you to be able to, to store and back that up, all you need is those 12 words and you have access to your Bitcoin no matter what. Um, obviously, this makes it much simpler than custodying gold. It also means that if you, for instance, had to like flee a nation state, if you had to, to run across a border or something like that, you can take your wealth with you by just memorizing 12 words, which is a, a crazy, crazy thing. And for anyone who has gone through a scenario like that or watched the things that have unfolded in Ukraine or those sorts of things where people are having to flee across borders, getting your wealth out of countries is incredibly difficult. Whereas with Bitcoin, 12 words, you memorize those, you have them written down, saved safely, you have access to all of your wealth. Uh, and really, that's the only way that you are using Bitcoin. There are a lot of ways you can feel like you're using Bitcoin, just like Venmo kind of makes you feel like you're using fiat money. Um, and exchanges are, are an example of that. Custodial wallets like a wallet of Satoshi are an example of that, where you're in a sense interacting with the Bitcoin network, but you don't actually hold your own keys. So you're trusting someone else to actually be verifying everything. You're trusting someone else to hang on to your Bitcoin, to not have lent it out to someone else, to not have just pocketed it themselves. Um, so when you actually hold your own keys, when you you know those 12 words or you have a, a good process in place for remembering or finding those 12 words, uh, you ultimately own your Bitcoin and you can do whatever you want with them, no permission required. Yeah, I think just to, to hop in and drive home what Seth was saying there, um, there's a there's a fantastic piece of uh, Bitcoin-related literature called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by VJ, a guy called VJ Boyapati, who, uh, and as part of this piece, uh, he lists out the um, all of the great properties of Bitcoin and how they stack up with, with the existing or legacy systems like gold and fiat money. I can see Joe's holding it up there. Yeah, recommend anybody that's listening to this or watching this to go and read that book. It's uh, I think it's about, it's not, it's not exactly, yeah. It's not just a article as well, yeah. Fantastic piece of Bitcoin literature that should be in any any budding Bitcoiner's uh, repertoire. Um, so yeah, as part of that piece, he lists out all of the different properties of Bitcoin. Uh, I'll quickly reel them off. I won't go into all of them, but talks about durability, portability, fungibility, verifiability, divisibility, scarcity, uh, established history, and censorship resistance. Um, and the bit that, that the piece drives home in, as well as kind of comparing them with gold and fiat to see how they sort of stack up and where you see Bitcoin might fall short, um, he, it also drives home the fact that unless you are, uh, as Seth said, holding your own keys and being fully in control of your Bitcoin, that all of those properties are either completely nullified or they're significantly watered down, depending on which one we're talking about, when you, somebody else is holding your Bitcoin. Um, so a perfect example would be, you know, Bitcoin is verifiably scarce. And what we mean by that is uh, anybody that wants to run the Bitcoin software can verify exactly how much you're in existence at any one time. But if you are holding your, or an exchange is holding your Bitcoin for you, um, then, you know, the total supply cap might be theoretically 21 million, but that exchange, as we've seen, unfortunately, in previous history may have sold many more times over that. So they're, effect they're, they're effectively recreating the banking system by running a fraction, fractional reserve. Um, us as Bitcoiners can mitigate against that by taking our Bitcoin into, into self-custody. And that's just one of the properties, uh, you know, this clearly many that I listed off and they all become 10x more powerful when we hold our own private keys. And to really hammer that point home about paper Bitcoin, um, you know, if you're holding your Bitcoin on an exchange, you are essentially, you're not participating in the reason that Bitcoin was created in the first place, right? Um, you know, Bitcoin was created so that this adjacent monetary system could be built um, that was completely apart from legacy finance within which there are no intermediaries that can uh, create money out of thin air, right? For our viewers are well aware of this, but for those that aren't, right, in this uh, banking system that we currently live in, that we all participate in, 
um, you know, money is lent into existence, right? And so when you deposit money in a bank, um, it's that money itself is not lent uh, to somebody else. Um, uh, barely any of it is actually uh, kept on the books. Almost all of it is 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 used to write loans. And when loans are written, they're just uh, written into existence out of nowhere, right? The, you, you, the, your money isn't being given to someone else. The money that's being given to somebody else is just created out of nowhere. And that's essentially what can occur at some of these uh, exact same exchanges, right? Coinbase, FTX, Binance. And FTX was proven to have done this for all of the um, uh, near, uh, you know, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin that they supposedly had on their platform, uh, they were actually only holding 11 at the time of their liquidation, 11 Bitcoin. Um, and this was uh, proven in, in the, uh, uh, the documents that were released following their actual asset mix. Um, so 11 Bitcoin for their uh, tens of billions, hundreds of billions worth of depositors. And that's what you're leaving yourself open to if you leave your Bitcoin on exchanges. It's not verifiably yours. You're trusting that somebody else, when you put a Bitcoin order in, they actually go out and purchase Bitcoin and are holding it for you. And, and in reality, because everything is so opaque and behind closed doors, that oftentimes isn't really the case. And you're just opening yourself up to more of this legacy financial system folly, right? You're never actually owning your Bitcoin if it's just a number on a screen that you see. The only way you're owning your Bitcoin is if, if you actually have it in self-custody. I want to talk a little bit about some of the trends that we're observing when it comes to exchange outflows. More people seem to be taking self-custody seriously. Uh, since 2020, since March of 2020, when the price crashed down to $3,000, uh, the balance of Bitcoin held on exchanges has only been falling, right? Exchange outflows have been occurring on net. There hasn't been a reversal in that regime uh, for more than three years now. Why do you guys think that is? Why do you guys think that in the wake of March 16th, 2020, when all risk assets collapsed, everyone went into pandemonium and the Fed began uh, quantitative easing and, and, and cutting rates uh, more aggressively than it ever had before? Why do you think that now Bitcoin has been flowing off of exchanges on net? Why are people taking it so seriously all of a sudden? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's twofold. Uh, since the, the date that you mentioned, I think it was March 2020 when we had the, the significant flash crash. Well, every single market had the significant flash crash. Bitcoin was no different. Um, since then, uh, clearly we're, we're significantly, uh, in terms of fiat terms, significantly higher than that, roughly about $30,000 per coin today. Um, so clearly, you know, people who were fortunate enough to be able to buy some Bitcoin back then or, or in the years since, uh, I probably have uh, done okay in terms of fiat terms um so they've probably seen their their, their net worth uh, rise somewhat significantly and, and realized that uh, maybe it's a good idea that i take self-custody of this or at least um, mitigate some of the risk the third-party risk by leave by taking some off an exchange which is obviously a fantastic figure to see um and i think the second piece for me would also be that in the wake of all of the what we've seen in the last 12 months specifically so um ftx you know one of the world's largest exchanges being uh, basically found out to be a basic ponzi scheme um i'm sure that's affected a vast significant of the population that weren't practicing self-custody um there's an age-old saying in, in the bitcoin space that uh, sometimes you have to touch the stove to get burned before you, you learn a lesson and i think uh, a lot of people have realized that this year outside of that as well I, I forget the names now hopefully you guys can help me out but we've also had uh, a couple of other recent exchanges that have that have um gone upside down and been caught you know using too much leverage and not having the bitcoin that they said they had um so yeah i think it's just a culmination of events where um, multiple people uh, or bitcoiners that were uh, exposed to third parties such as these exchanges have uh, unfortunately you know been caught on the wrong end of that and have realized the importance of self-custody because if they were in control of their own keys um, they didn't have that third-party risk then they would not have um 
they would not have got burned. Yeah, I think another thing that we've seen too is when we have those massive flash crashes, flash crashes. It feels like uh, a lot of the the normal investors, kind of the broader market investors in Bitcoin, get flushed out very quickly, like faster than any other market. And so you usually are left with those kind of holders of last resort, those people who are dedicated to Bitcoin, who are focused on it, and they want to hold their own keys normally. Uh, it's not just another kind of risk on asset for them. It's something that that they uh, put value in beyond just the fiat price that they want to be able to use. They want to be sure that they have control over it. So I think we see things like that with like that that March 2020 flash crash, where the people that we're left with are the people who are focused, who understand the need for actually holding their own keys. Um, and then like Q&A mentioned, I really think it's unfortunate, but most people have to either get burned by an exchange hack, by an exchange um, rehypothecating Bitcoin, by all of these kinds of in insane scenarios. I mean, I feel like the last six months in Bitcoin have been the, the craziest since I've been in Bitcoin with so many bad things happening in the space that honestly, they wake people up. Uh, and it's unfortunate that oftentimes it takes something like that to wake people up. But as those big events happen, it's, it starts to shake people up and, and make them go, okay, if I actually take Bitcoin seriously, I don't want to just invest in it in a 401k. I don't want to just put it uh, put it money into a Bitcoin ETF. I want to actually hold my own keys so that I have power to opt out through Bitcoin. Because all of those other forms of, of paper Bitcoin ultimately don't give you power. They're just an extension of the legacy financial system. Like you said, they're not what Bitcoin was made to do. They're not what actually gives you a way to opt out of that broken system. So the more people get burned, the more people see brokenness in the legacy financial system, the more people see brokenness in the banking system and in the, even the Bitcoin banking and exchange system. Uh, it really does, I think, start to, to force them into saying, okay, I'm going to take the personal responsibility for this and I'm going to take the dive into actually holding my own keys. Got it. So we talk about you know, the trade-offs between gold and Bitcoin. And we say that these are uh, gold and, of course, other monetary metals. And then Bitcoin, these are two bearer assets that you can verifiably own and verifiably be yours. What are some of the trade-offs between, say, gold, and I'll use that as sort of the proxy for all other monetary metals, and Bitcoin, right? What are some of the trade-offs there and why uh, over the last decade and then some, now that Bitcoin is, is a teenager, it's 13 years old, um, why are more people choosing uh, Bitcoin, not on a total liquidity profile basis? Of course, um, Bitcoin is still a fraction of a fraction of gold's uh, 10 trillion plus liquidity profile. Um, but why is the growth profile of Bitcoin much larger and much uh, increasing in a much higher magnitude than that of gold? Why are people choosing it over Bitcoin? What are some of the trade-offs there? I think for me, I mean, we've touched on some of the the ease of actually holding it yourself. Um, I think another big piece that jumps out to me is that in the digital age, people who have kind of grown up as like inter internet native um, people like myself, it's much easier to connect with something that is is digital, that is digital value, rather than actually having to deal with physical gold. Like I, I never really bothered with cash until I, until I started to care more deeply about personal privacy. And then I realized that like cash is actually a really good tool for personal privacy. But gold is a really painful tool to actually have to custody yourself. If you don't want to rely on someone else, if you don't want to trust a custodian, there's a lot of difficulty involved there. Um, it also, I think, is just that that aspect of, like you talked about, the simplicity of Venmo, being able to send money instantly to anyone around around the world. Once you start to actually use Bitcoin and understand how that works, especially when you're talking about like the Lightning Network, which kind of gives that that instant finality that people expect from something like a Venmo or a PayPal, 
it hits home, I think, a lot more clearly than gold does as a, as a useful, usable tool and asset. So it can really be both a store of value, something that you store your wealth in, and something that you actually use to transact day to day, which I think it makes it connect very powerfully for me beyond gold. Uh, but I'm sure Q&A has more to, to chime in on that topic. Yeah, uh, I'm going to take a little bit more of a dystopian look. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, we've seen unfortunate events like uh, the war in the Ukraine, where people have had to flee uh, from the conflict. I'm sure there's many other conflicts as well, where, you know, similar uh, nations have been in similar situations. Uh, we've also seen the, the whole uh, COVID lockdown piece where people have been um, stuck in a place that they didn't want to leave or find it very difficult to leave. Um, anybody that was in either of those situations, which unfortunately is fairly common these days, um, would have had a very, very difficult time leaving with their, a vast proportion of their uh, savings or their personal wealth if it was stored in gold. And there has actually been um, a number of news stories where people have been caught going through security in airports or boarding planes with literally with like pieces of gold sewn, sewn into their jackets um, or stacks of cash in their suitcase. Um, it's not easy to take your wealth with you if it's in that sort of form. Uh, you know, as if, if they're that sort of wealth uh, or volume of wealth was stored within Bitcoin. Um, you know, with 12 words in my head, I can store $5 or I can store $5 billion. Um, the, the size of the words doesn't grow uh, and I can take that anywhere with me as long as I can remember that. So um, yeah, the, the, the more kind of dystopian look, Bitcoin does provide a, a very valid uh, method for you to take your wealth with you. Tremendous. And I absolutely agree. And it seems that more cases of uh, people needing to flee nations, right? Whether it be for war, whether it be for economic reasons, um, you know, whether it be because their their country is facing hard times and so they're locking people out of their bank accounts. I know what occurred about a decade ago, um, uh, and it, the the country w in which it occurred is slipping my mind. But um, you know, people being locked out of their uh, bank accounts and uh, getting pennies on the dollar if they were even able to get that, um, and in the country just completely claimed it. Granted, we may be at lesser risk of that in countries like the United States, Canada, but that said, right, it doesn't preclude you from that risk. You're not shielded from that risk just because you live in a country where it is, is less likely to occur. Uh, owning gold, owning Bitcoin, um, particularly Bitcoin, if you need to flee a country, um, is, is really the only way to make sure that your money cannot be seized. So let, let's talk about some of the options Okay, people can use to do this, right? People can use to use Bitcoin the way it was intended. We talk about Venmo, the ease of which people use Venmo. The people listening to this episode probably use Venmo or Cash App or any one of those other options because of their ease, their simplicity, and just because it works. They use it and it works. It's very simple. It's very intuitive. They can turn on their phone. I want to talk about some of the options for having Bitcoin and owning Bitcoin and storing and using and sending Bitcoin that are as easy as Venmo. And then we'll talk about some of the more secure options for some people that may be more interested um, in, in something like more like a, a vault, right? A vault at a bank. Uh, we'll talk about some of those options in a moment here. But first, uh, I want to talk about some of the options you guys may have, you may use on a regular basis um, for viewers at home that don't want to sacrifice the simplicity of Venmo, but they want to take their Bitcoin off exchanges and participate sort of in this uh, in this action that we've been talking about over the course of this episode. Uh, for example, I know myself, I use things like Moon Wallet, I use Blue Wallet, very simple, very easy to use. Um, and you're not, you know, you're sacrificing uh, some of the security that can be found in more expensive uh, sort of options that are separate devices, but by the same token, you're using Bitcoin the way that it was intended, you're actually custodying it. So, um, you know, real quick, give us give us some options for uh, for for users for viewers of this show that may want a simpler option for storing their Bitcoin. 
Yeah, I think um, the I'll start with the most simple option, and, and obviously this is very uh, situationally dependent. You know, if you've got a couple of million dollars um, of worth of Bitcoin to secure, then probably don't uh, use just one of the mobile wallets I'm about to suggest. But if you're just starting out, in the, you know, and just getting your first uh, satoshis or you know small pieces of Bitcoin, then a mobile wallet is a fantastic option. Um, you know, f- three or four of my favorites. Blue Wallet, you mentioned that is a great, you know, simple onboarding one. Uh, Blockstream Green is another great one. Uh, I'm a big fan of Samurai Wallet. Um, and, you know, I'll shell our own wares as well. Um, we've literally just uh, released Envoy, uh, which is now acting as a hot wallet or a traditional mobile wallet as well with um, arguably uh, one of the, you know, simplest uh, user interfaces in the space as well. So that's currently out as a public beta and should be uh, in main release for, for everybody to access just in a couple of weeks as well. So, yeah, definitely start out with a mobile wallet. There'll be a, an interface that you're familiar with. Um, and as your sort of stack of Bitcoin starts to grow, um, and it's of a value that you don't feel comfortable walking around with day to day, then you could probably look at some of the more secure options, which I'll hand over to Seth to, to cover off. Yeah, I think one thing to add with the, the mobile options too is like even if you are like a high net worth individual and you have a few million dollars of Bitcoin, I think a mobile wallet can be a really good tool to get you comfortable with using Bitcoin. So you don't have to withdraw all your Bitcoin at once. If you want to start to play around with it, get comfortable with seed words, get comfortable with that that backup and restore process, you can just start by withdrawing 100 bucks of Bitcoin, throw it to a mobile wallet, send it to yourself, get a friend to send it back and forth with, so that you can actually test what Bitcoin is like to actually use, what the experience is like, what using that specific wallet, like Blue Wallet is like. Um, you can really get your feet wet in a way that's not putting like all of your wealth at risk. So I think it can be a really good way to do that, even if you do have a lot of Bitcoin stored somewhere else, just to kind of get your feet wet there. Um, if we are talking the more secure options, so like we talked about these mobile wallets, which are are excellent tools, they're what's normally called kind of like a hot wallet in the sense that your funds are exposed to the internet in the in a sense. That device, if that device was compromised, if you had your seed words on your phone and in blue wallet and somebody got your phone and was able to unlock it, they could could steal your Bitcoin from that wallet, uh, which obviously opens up some risk. It's not crazy because phones are actually quite secure these days when you have a good passcode on them, uh, when you're using a good biometric unlock. Um, but it does put those Bitcoin at risk because they're on a device that's connected to the internet. You could install malware on accident. You could have the phone hacked by someone physically. There is some risk there. So when you want to move to a more secure setup, usually what we use is is something like a hardware wallet in Bitcoin. Uh, and that can take a lot of different forms. I mean, this is our hardware wallet. It's called Passport. Um, but basically what a hardware wallet is, is it allows you to keep those private keys that we talked about on a dedicated device that's built specifically to handle Bitcoin. Uh, and it does so, again, they can take lots of different forms. Uh, often it's what's called air-gapped as well, which means that your device is never connected to the internet, your keys never touch an internet-connected device. When you actually want to receive Bitcoin, you can do that anytime once you connect to a wallet, uh, like Blue Wallet, like Envoy. It can pull receive addresses anytime, even if you don't have the hardware wallet on you. But when you want to send funds, you have to turn on the hardware wallet, go through a flow, usually like scanning a, a few QR codes back and forth to actually send those funds. And that means that even if someone compromised your phone, even if they compromised your computer and you're even sending a transaction through your phone or your computer, they wouldn't be able to access your Bitcoin at all. Um, so it provides a lot more security. It does add a little bit more complexity, um, but when when the option, I think, works hard to simplify the process, it often can bring it more peace of mind than using a mobile wallet because you do have that that extra security in that you're not putting all of your Bitcoin on something that, that is on a, a phone that you have on you all the time. 
I second that. There is there is an additional sort of level of peace of mind of security um, of of where I have not just my hardware wallets plural stored. Uh, you know, you you can really amp up the security game uh, if you if you would so choose, right? I personally have several types of of hardware wallets spread across those, but really, I, I would suggest um, exactly as Seth said really trying to dip your toes in the water, right? With some of these mobile wallets, Envoy, um, public beta right now, but I've used the app. It's extremely intuitive. And we'll talk about a little bit about how uh, your own device, the Passport, uh, works interoperably with Envoy. And so it's a really, really simple experience. But it is uh, it is nice for for learning about it and seeing that uh, and becoming comfortable with it, right? Using uh, Bitcoin the way it was intended by sort of experimenting and figuring it out with uh, with the mobile wallet. And ultimately, right, you you do want to protect yourself and shield yourself from the worst case scenario. Um, and even if it is just a portion of your Bitcoin that you're putting into cold storage, uh, you know, I'd, I'd personally and I think everyone up here would highly suggest that you do that. So you know, let's uh, let's let's take the last few minutes here. Let's talk about your company, right? Let's talk about Foundation Devices why you guys were created, sort of your ethos and, and what you guys are all about as a company, and then the, uh, the, the products that you guys offer, right, with Envoy and uh, with the Passport Hardware Wallet, which, in my opinion, I've said this on several occasions, is the sleekest, sexiest, and easiest to use Bitcoin hardware wallet uh, on the market. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll kick off about the, the company. Uh, Foundation was uh, was founded in, in 2020 um, by our four co-founders. Um, and we set out to uh, help uh, Bitcoiners to reclaim their sovereignty. That's our, our uh, company tagline. Um, and what we mean by that is that we want to build tools uh, and, and software that empowers people to be able to do things like self-custody their Bitcoin and maybe more in the future uh, in terms of you know other options such as... Um, other sovereignty tools such as, uh, you know, password management and whatnot, you know, we'd love to do something like that in the future, but we're hyper-focused on Bitcoin right now um, and making um, everybody everybody else's journey um, as smooth and as simple as possible because, you know, we're all Bitcoiners in our, in our company and we know, you know, we've all been there, sat there on day one, looking at a mobile wallet or looking at a hardware wallet thinking, oh my God, what the hell do I do here? So we've made it our mission to kind of um, simplify that journey as much as we can. Um, but maintain a hyper focus on security as well so we like to do all of the hard stuff so that our users don't have to so we design our our, our devices not only to look as sleek and as sexy as you said joe um but to also make them super intuitive to use and to also have the guardrail set super high so that we can kind of guide our users uh, along what we see as the best path so that we can get them to that all important self-custody end goal so that they're um they're in control of all of their Bitcoin and they haven't had to jump through 3000 different hoops to try and or read a whole book to, to learn how to use the device. So that's, uh, the, you know, the company's vision and what we're hyper focused on and what we spend day after day uh, producing. Um, so I'll let Seth kind of cover off uh, more about Passport itself and, you know, how uh, our vision and, and ethos has kind of been poured into that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think a, a lot of the products that have come out in the hardware wallet space for Bitcoin have been built by hardcore hardcore Bitcoiners for hardcore Bitcoiners, which means that a lot of times the, the user experience, the user interface, assume a lot of things about how you're approaching Bitcoin. They assume that you have a deep knowledge of how Bitcoin works, of what these different term, terms mean, of what an XPUB is and a ZPUB is and uh, what a public key is and, and all of these different things that, that are usually just confusing when you enter uh, into using Bitcoin for the first time. And so our approach, we've we've really tried to kind of take an Apple-like approach and making something very easy to use, very intuitive, very familiar in the, the interface, 
Um, it's a, a regular kind of T9 keyboard on here with the directional pad. Like it's it's nothing crazy in the actual interface itself because we don't want it to be something that is is shocking that prevents you from really diving in and using Bitcoin in the way it was intended. Um, so we're, we're trying to do that in a sense where when you're a new user, if you have no idea how Bitcoin works, but you want to hold your own keys, this product will help you. And this product, Passport specifically, will help you to do that every step of the way. Uh, we'll give you guided flows on both the device and on the mobile app Envoy that, that is a kind of a companion app for it. And, and Bitcoin Wallet will walk you through every step of the process. Um, we try to make it as easy as possible for you when you're getting onboarded to, to get your keys off an exchange into your own hands. And then as you grow in your knowledge of Bitcoin, as you grow in the approach you want to take to security, if you want to start doing more complex multi-signature setups, if you want to start doing more complex things around privacy with Bitcoin, we do support those things as well. And we do those things in a very intuitive way. But we don't overwhelm you at the start with everything that there is about Bitcoin because we want it to be a really, really approachable experience. Um, so Passport is designed to be a very approachable, very easy to use Bitcoin hardware wallet that helps you secure your Bitcoin. Uh, and then Envoy is our mobile companion app, um, which helps you to update firmware on, on Passport, to manage funds, to be able to see how much Bitcoin you have in different accounts, to be able to quickly send and receive from anywhere. Um, and then we've also just launched Hot Wallet support as well, which means that you can use it as a regular Bitcoin mobile wallet on the go, in addition to using it with Passport. So if you want to have some Bitcoin on you to buy coffee or whatever, to, to buy some merch at a conference, you can do that. You can leave your passport at home. And then when you get home, you can top up your hot wallet later on as well. So we're really trying to build a, a suite of products that will help you to be able to use Bitcoin to give you peace of mind. We really don't want it to be something where you buy this hardware wallet, you look at it, you go, I have no idea how I'm going to use this, and you toss it in a drawer. We don't want that to be the experience. We want people to get their Bitcoin off exchanges. Uh, so we've worked really hard to make that as approachable as possible. Yeah, I think uh, I'll just quickly chime in about uh, something else about the ethos that, that again is poured into to, to how we we build our hardware and software is that we we build everything around openness, um, and, and that's twofold. Um, everything that we do is is something that's called open source. So anybody that wants to go and look and verify, um, you know, how our hardware is built or how our software is put together, they can ex inspect that code line by line. Now, obviously, there's not many people in the on the, on the planet that have the, the know-how to do that. I certainly don't. Um, but the fact that we do that out in the open so that anybody that does have the know-how can go and do that, um, then, you know, that holds us accountable to make sure that we're doing things the right way, we're doing things right by our users. Um, and the other sort of uh, caveat, or well, not caveat, the other flip side to, to that sort of level of openness is that we always make sure that Passport um, is compatible with all of the possible uh, other Bitcoin wallets out there uh, or software wallets, should I say. So whilst we build Envoy to be, you know, the absolute pinnacle of, of the Passport experience and the, the smoothest onboarding and usage thereafter, um, we know that not all of our users are going to want to do that. So we, we, we make sure that we abide by all of the common Bitcoin standards such that, you know, you might start off with Envoy, uh, start your stacking journey like that, and then want some more advanced features that, let's say, uh, Sparrow Wallet or Blue Wallet has that we haven't implemented into Envoy yet. Um, because we're interoperable with all of those and many, many more, then you can uh, up and leave and you're not painted into the foundation ecosystem at any point. So if you want to uh, move away from Envoy and or Passport or combine them with other wallets, then you're free to do that at any time as well. And we think that's super, super important so that, you know, none of our customers are, are kind of painted into a wall garden, you know, quite analogous to something like Apple. Tremendous. You know, I think approachable is really the operative word here for, for our viewers listening. And we're, you know, we're going to wrap this up with a bow here. 
you've probably heard the term Bitcoin hardware wallet and you immediately go, no, no, I don't want to touch that thing, right? Because you think about it and you think of this extremely complex looking device, a screen that isn't even an LCD, right? It's a calculator screen. Uh, it's extremely difficult to use if you're not familiar with the way that Bitcoin works already. And that's not how Bitcoin cold storage should work, right? If, if mass adoption is going to be a thing, if more people are going to take this seriously and begin using Bitcoin as a bearer asset, which will ostensibly lead to more people actually viewing Bitcoin in the same category as gold rather than viewing Bitcoin in the same category as the NASDAQ, then there need to be options that make it easy to use right out of the box. Uh, and what I can say is uh, foundation is the hardware wallet that enables that to happen, right? Is as much security, as much uh, of a fan backing behind the staunch Bitcoin community there is for other hardware wallet options. I can confidently say that the hardware wallet that is the simplest to use for the public, the general public, who has never touched anything related to Bitcoin in their lives, uh, it's definitely the Passport, right? You download the app on your phone, you launch the, pa uh, you you turn the Passport on within minutes, you have everything set up. It's directly interoperable with your phone. It's very, very easy to use. Um, you know, it's no harder than setting up your Venmo or Cash App account, which I think is the edge that Foundation has, uh, that the, the Passport has. And I think that for anyone who has been on the fence because of the stigma surrounding how difficult and how clunky Bitcoin hardware wallets are, that stigma simply isn't there with the passport. It's pretty game changing. Uh, so guys, tell them where to go. Tell them where to go in order to uh, secure one of these devices today. Yeah, so you can obviously pick up uh, or learn more about Passport uh, on our website at foundationdevices.com. Uh, lots of uh, different images and, and uh, tutorials and um, explainers and feature sets of, of Passport and on, of Envoy. Um, and another sort of uh, feature that, sorry, not a feature, another uh, product that we uh, we don't shill enough, in my opinion, although I am slightly biased, is our concierge service. Um, so even after listening to all of this, if that still sounds super scary for you, but you like the sound of Passport and you want to kind of uh, you want your handheld to, to take that first step into self-custody, then uh, when you do buy a passport, you can um, book on uh, into a, a concierge onboarding session, which is essentially an hour or a little over an hour with myself. Um, and I will hold your hand throughout the whole uh, setup process from literally taking it out the box to getting it set up with Envoy and then withdrawing some Bitcoin from whichever exchange it is that you use. So uh, although we do make it as easy as possible, there are we, we understand that there are some people out there that do benefit from that one-on-one -on -one, uh, experience. So we off, we cover for those bases as well. So uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, to chatting with a few people that hopefully take the dive sometime soon. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as per usual, of course, you know that the Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Um, and of course, having these gentlemen on to discuss what their product is all about and the importance of self-custody in general, something that we were really looking forward to. And uh, I think this conversation went extremely well, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for having us on, Joe. For sure. Yep. Thanks, Joe. Take care, guys. See you.